Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP to see the latest wines that I am drinking. 10% off your first order with my special URL. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. So much Italian stuff in the wake of my trip. There is more to come. I hope that you all are enjoying the coverage of Italy because it's not over yet. Although I will say last week, Jeff Clark from O2 Wines mm-hmm. from New Zealand. That was a fantastic show. I learned so much from that show. We are also going to have a French producer coming on and I am trying very hard to get somebody from Spain, but we have so many great guests lined up for the second half of the year. I can't even tell you. I'm, I'm not going to tell you, but I am excited. And if you... Sign up for the newsletter, which you now can do very easily because I have a new website. Go to winefornormalpeople.com. I am so excited about the new website. Can we please give a plug to Polly Hammond from Five Forests? If you're a business, especially if you're in lifestyle, you have got to contact Polly. You can see the work and it is amazing. So I do have to give a and plug for her. And you have a blast doing it because she, she is, is awesome. She's so she fun is, to work with. And she listens and she explains things. It is unlike any other experience I've ever had working with a web person. It's the best. And I'm so spoiled from working with her. And we but took her you time. Credit. You had a vision. But yes. it was our joint vision. And that's how great she is. It's really easy to navigate. And it's pretty and it's, That's what it's I so her. much easier to use. So yes. kudos to you. And, and it's Polly. mobile friendly. So again, five forest, the number five forest.com. And if you are a marketer, a digital marketer, you should also sign up for her newsletter because she is full of brilliance. But anyway, that is what I've been doing this week. I've been doing it a lot longer than that. It's been in the works for a while. Yeah, I know, but we launched it this week. I so know. continuing on the Italy path. Here's the deal. I have already recorded next week's podcast. Next week's podcast is with Stefania Fuseli from Le Vigne di Silvia. Is this the soccer, or sorry, football professional slash wine guru maker? Well, it's a much more complicated story than that. (laughs) And it is her sister who came on the show because Sylvia does not speak English. Stefania came on. Sylvia is the footballer. You love them both, though. I love them both, and I love their parents. They are some of the best people that I have met in a really long time. And I had such a great time with Stefania one-on-one also. I had a great time with her at the winery. She had purchased my book. It was so nice, so flattering, so nice that she did some research and wonderful. That podcast is about their family and their family journey, the winery and all of the wonderful wines that they make. They make three wines. They have a limited selection and they are fantastic. And I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it on the show next week, but I'll say it now too. If you are an importer and you are interested in Really a fantastic limited production boutique winery from Bulgari. This is the one. They make fantastic wines and they are the best people you'll ever work with. So let me guess, this is a Bulgari primer. Right. So in preparation for this show with Stefania, I realized that we had never done a show on Bulgari. 
Now, we have done shows on Tuscany, and we've talked about Chianti, and we've talked about many other regions, Montalcino. We've talked about Vino Nobile di Montepulciano. But one thing that we have never addressed is Bulgari. And Bulgari, after being there, it really is such a different part of Tuscany. And I think that the podcast next week will be much better for the listeners if we cover Bulgari now. Okay. So that is that the makes point sense. here. We will talk about all of the things that you need to know about Bulgari. But the most important thing you need to know is that it is the birthplace of the Super Tuscan movement. Oh, really? Yes. When, when did that start? Well, we're going to go over all of that. But before we do that, we obviously have to do our patron shoutouts because they are the ones that are keeping this podcast alive, along with Wine Access. So we're going to thank Andy, Michael S., Dave M., Bill and Tina K., who have been patrons forever, but I guess there was a, a glitch in their thing. So mm-hmm. I just want to say they are so awesome. You guys are the best. Love you, Tina and Bill. We're with you in Tuscany. We're and with you. Travelers, in, right. Yes, yeah, we're exactly. with you in Tuscany and Piedmont. They joined before we did shout outs. So oh, there wow. we go. You get your shout out now, lady and gentlemen who I adore. Michael T, Matt D, Lynn K, Catherine S, Hui Min C, Mike Flo, Jane A, Mike M, Michael E, Steve Levy, Connie G, Mario S, Nicole D, Quinn, Abigail T, Olivia, Steve B, Ron T, Betsy B, Teresa K, Chris M, David R, and Sarah S. Thank you all for being patrons. I know I've surprised some people by telling them that we only have about 4% of listeners be patrons. So although it sounds like a lot of people, it is not that many. And the community is so fantastic. So hopefully you will think about joining patreon.com slash wine for normal people. And click like and subscribe. Oh, wait a minute. No. Oh my God. I hate wrong, that. Wrong f- Why no, is that? Right. It's, it's so annoying. Yes. I will never, I, one just, thing I will never do on any YouTube videos if you, I ever get around I was to say, Are you some. ever going to do any? No, I have some recorded. I just am like, I need, uh, I need to edit them. Well, anyway. Don't say like and subscribe. I'm not going to. Let's give this overview of Bulgari. Bulgari is on the Tuscan coast. It's in the province of Livorno. And this is where the hills are tapering off to the sea. In Tuscany, you don't have steep cliffs going off to the sea like in the Amalfi Coast. It does taper off to beachfront. The DOC of Bulgari, or the area that we're talking about, does not include any coastline. It is an area west of a road called Via Aurelia. It was the ancient Roman road that was built in the 3rd century BCE, borders the coastline, Mm -hmm. beaches and pine forest, yes, vines, no. Am I completely out of it for not really being that familiar with Bulgari? No, and this is exactly why we're doing the show in preparation for Stefania and Le Vigne di Silvia. Because this is not a region that would just come to mind if you would ask me about top top regions in Italy. And it's totally different. And it's in Tuscany, but I think most people don't know that Tuscany has a little archipelago off of it. There are seven islands in Tuscany. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Many of us from history class know Elba because Napoleon was exiled to Elba. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Which was right near his native Corsica. Anyway, what is He was here... really roughing it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and getting Bon de Constance from South Africa, which was one of his favorite wines. But anyway, this is a tiny village 
of Bulgari, which we went to, and some aristocrat was getting married, and we watched the wedding. Oh, that's right. You had yeah. some photos. Yeah. There was security all around. You're right. As I explained what Bulgari is, it's not surprising that it was an aristocrat wedding, but this is a tiny village of Bulgari. And actually, leading up to the village of Bulgari, there's a very famed cypress-lined avenue. And this is one of the most photographed sites in Tuscany. They're quite tall, though. I thought they would be a little more spindly, but they're quite tall because they're old. old. It's very different topography and soil from the rest of Tuscany and different grapes. Flatland, you have alluvial, colluvial coming down from the mountains, fertile soils. And as I said, this is the home of the original Super Tuscan wine. It is called Sassicaia. Now it has its own dock, D-O-C, Bulgari Sassicaia. It is the only monopole, as the French call it, in Italy. It is one estate, and it has been granted its own dock, DOC. Bulgari, in general, is tiny. I mean, it is 13 kilometers or 8 miles north to south, and 7 kilometers or 4.3 miles east to west. The vineyard area, 1,350 hectares or 3,330 acres, and the production is 519,000 cases of wine per year. That's it. Half a million. Jeez. Is it all contiguous area? It is. Okay. 81%, this is totally following the trend of Tuscany, Mm -hmm. 81% of the wine is red. Okay. 14% is white, and you have 5% that's rosato. Rosato. (laughs) Right. There's a little bit of spumante also, but that's not included in the figures. Okay. The main reds, the Cabernets, Cabernet Hmm. Franc. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Sangiovese, and Syrah. Does that sound like Tuscany to you? No. Cab Franc, doesn't that usually grow in cooler climates? It does, but it can do okay in warmer climates. Wait, okay? In this particular climate, it does really well, but the whites, Vermentino, wow. Bulgari Vermentino gets a double thumbs up from me. I think it is the best white of Tuscany. Ooh. Delicious. Also, Sauvignon Blanc, Viognier. There are some others, but these are the main grapes. Let me get to the climate. Tuscany has seven islands, as I mentioned. There are sea breezes that are going to flow through these islands, and they're going to keep the area cooler than other coastal zones. Okay. It's about one degree Celsius cooler than it is on other parts of the coast. And that's going to make the wines a little lighter on their feet than they would be otherwise. It's consistently windy. There are over 250 days of wind per year. And the effect of the wind is that it's going to reduce humidity and it's going to limit fungal diseases so they're able to do organics here. And there's a lot of sun. We're right on the coast. So the sea is reflecting light. It's very bright here. Mm -hmm. Very, very bright. Big difference between the seaside and inland. You can see it right away. Now, the land is particularly interesting because although this is a teeny tiny area, you have the, I'm going to probably say this wrong, but I'm going to try anyway, Colini Meralifere. These are hills. They actually have a variety of metallic mineral resources, which makes a difference in the wine. Hmm. And they are in the east and they slowly, slowly and gradually slope downwards towards the coastline and it creates an amphitheater. Hmm. Because you have the coast on one side and you've got the mountains surrounding. And the microclimate is going to be defined by the hills. There are many microclimates within the area, but whether you're on the hills or on the flats. Are they all western facing then? Most vineyards are facing nothing because they are flat. 
They're so not on, grown on the hillsides? Most of them are not. There are some tiered hillsides that are going to descend towards this flat terrain. Right. Most of the vineyards are flat. Much like Bordeaux, there's no orientation here. It's flat. The altitudes are a very high 10 to 380 meters or 33 feet. Wow. To 1,246 feet, but that is only in the mountains that normally you're not going to find viticulture there. Bulgari has marine soils, obviously, on the coast, and it also has alluvial soils that are coming through the many streams that run through the area and some colluvial stuff that's coming off of the mountains. Those hillsides, as I mentioned, are rich in minerals. You have sand, limestone, of course, from former seabed, clay, pebbles, Volcanic rock in the east, 27 different types of soil, according to Attilio Scienza, who I had the honor of meeting years ago Hmm. in Verona. He is one of the foremost scientists on Italian soils and Italian viticulture, and he is a force and a very kind person. Many of these soils are going to appear in small areas. It is essential that the vintners know their land so they can match the soil and the grape together. Mostly what you have, especially on the valley floor where these vineyards lay, is sandy clay loam. These are alkaline soils. They are very deep. Wait, what what is alkaline? How does that affect the grape? Usually base soils are going to make the wines more acidic. Let me just go over the history. If you don't say Romans, I'm going to get really mad. Don't worry. Okay. We're getting there. Okay. From the 12th century BCE, in the hillsides, there were people living here. But the flats, where most of the vineyards are now, Mm -hmm. was swampland. The ancient Etruscans were here, and they established viticultural practices before the Greeks in southern Italy, before the birth of Rome. It was one of the first Western European areas cultivated. So Bulgari's got pedigree. It's been around a long time. After the end of the Roman Empire, there was a lot of instability. And remember that because it is on the coast, mm-hmm. you had raids coming in from the sea. There were a lot of different parties trying to invade Bulgaria and taking control. Finally, the Lombards brought some stability to the land. The settlements, oh, like the Lombards, many places yeah. in, in Tuscany, the settlements are on hilltops. Mm-hmm. First of all, there were unhealthy conditions, malaria conditions. In the swamplands, which is now where most of the vineyards are, I will remind you again. And also for strategic defense, which is all Tuscany. Why is Tuscany full of these castles up on hillsides? For defense. Defense. Sure. Yes, you could see all around you. Mm -hmm. The views are pretty, but they're also there to protect Florence. You want to make sure Pisa. See the marauders on their way in. Pisa and Siena. You've got to make sure that everything is visible. In the early Middle Ages... Actually, there's a fortress in the town of Bulgari. It's now the castle of Bulgari. Oh, wow. Yeah. So at the end of the 1600s, that's when we start to see viticulture and land development. And it began with the counts of the Delaguerra Desca family. And they planted the first vineyards in the flat terrain around the areas of San Guido and Belvedere. These are estates. Guidalberto Guerra Desca planted that Cypress Avenue I was talking about. It's a five-kilometer stretch that connects the Bulgari Castle to San Guido. And Mm. this is a national monument. It has 
2,540 cypress trees. Oh, jeez. It's amazing. He wanted it to look pretty. The Are water... they the skinny cypress trees? No, or they're they not. Big, they're filled like, out. Filled out. They're okay. filled out. Guidalberto renovated the older vineyards, planted some new vines. And in the 1700s, there were already French grapes planted in this region. Why are they planting French grapes when there's so many great native Italian grapes? Because a lot of the native Italian grapes, including Sangiovese, do not do well. Hmm. This is the wrong soil for Sangiovese for the most part. There Hmm. is some here. There are pockets because I mentioned there's 27 different soils. But most of this is not good for Sangiovese or any of the other grapes that you'll find in other parts of Tuscany. After all of that work and after hundreds of years of the Della Gerardesca family doing viticulture here, phylloxera, powdery mildew, downy mildew devastated the area. Now, the Romans had already drained this swamp that I mentioned once so that people could live on the flatlands. Uh-huh. And they could do some viticulture there. But it had filled back in and it was swampy again. So in the 1930s, actually, Mussolini drained that swamp again and changed the area from this malaria prone area to a wine region. It was mostly boring white wines, but still it was a wine area. And there were small vineyards that were part of the Mezzadria system. The Mezzadria system is subsistence farming, sharecropping which was completely legal, actually was outlawed in the 1940s, but it it went on until the 70s, yes. Wines were only for local consumption in Bulgaria. They were not of high quality. People thought that the proximity of the sea was the reason for poor quality, but they could have just gone to parts of Portugal and they would have seen that that's not true. In the 1940s, and this plays into Stefania and Silvia's family story, workers on farms came from Le Marche, Le Marche is on the east coast of Italy. This was uncultivated farmland. There was no workforce. The aristocrats were forced to give up some of their land and sell it at a fair price to these folks. Now, one of the landowners was, the, was Marchese Mario Incisa della Rocchetta. He was half Piedmontese and half Roman. Right. And he moved to Tuscany after marrying the Countess Clarice della Garadesca in 1930. And Clarice's sister, Carlotta, this is super important, married Marchese Niccolo Antonori. Antonori is probably a name you've heard of. The largest estate in Bulgari was then divided between these two families, the Incisa della Rocchetta and the Antonori family. Mario Incisa della Rocchetta was very inspired by high-quality French wines that he drank. He was from Piedmont. Piedmont was a part of France, or part of Savoie. So there was a lot of French influence there. There were French grapes there, and there was French wine there. Mm -hmm. So he took cuttings of Cabernet Sauvignon from a friend, Duke Salviati, and he had vineyards near Pisa, and this was in 1942. Okay. Kind of bold, middle of the war. Right. Guy decides. 42? Yeah. <laughs> Very odd time. Yeah, like, seriously. Who would be like, that hey, took a se- Sorry, that took a second to register. Yeah, like, our country the- is getting wrecked. We have this dictator who's sided with the wrong side. It's just not great timing. But anyway, I guess when you're really rich, it doesn't matter. The plants actually that he took were already 50-year-old vines. 
They had planted this in the late 1800s. He thought, okay, these are high-quality vines. It's near Pisa, so they're adapted now to the Tuscan climate, Cabernet Sauvignon. Later, he decided, I'm going to plant some more because this is going pretty well near Bulgaria at a site that was protected from the sea. So they transplanted some of the 50-year-old vines? Probably at this point, they had already known how to graft. So they had rootstock and they grafted, but they could have uprooted some of them. Is it easier to transplant older or younger vines? It's not easy to do either. Younger vines are easier because there aren't deep roots. Got it. Likely they grafted these mm-hmm. because the solution of phylloxera had Was already been, using com- the yeah, been devised. Roots, yeah. Right. So they already understood the importance of rootstock. Of these cuttings, obviously, the guy was like, yeah, Mario in Chisa de la Roqueta was like, yeah, I'm going to make some wine from it. The wine was pretty good. Of course, he had help. He hired menologists. He had people in the vineyards. And this wine was really good, but it was a family wine. So this was only for family consumption. And it was for the aristocrats who came and visited and said, look, this is from my little vineyard here. Mm -hmm. Piero Antonori convinced Mario that this wine was so good that it needed to be sold commercially. This was after about 20 years of him just making it for himself. That's amazing. It started with the 1968 vintage. The 1968 vintage was released in 1971. It was an immediate hit with critics and connoisseurs. The locals hated it because it didn't taste like anything they normally drank. This wine was called Sasikaya. Until the end of the 1960s, Sasikaya was only a family wine. And now, With it out on the market and with sales in the hands of the Marchese Antonori, with some help from the Antonori's enologist, Giacomo Takis, they began to improve and make commercial production. We'll take a step away from the podcast. I do once again just want to give a plug for my friend Polly Hammond at Five Forests. If you do have a company that is looking for a great partner to do your website, consider going to fiveforest.com and checking out Polly. I know there's lots of people who are in marketing. She is a guru. She does wine stuff, but also lifestyle and lots of other things. I also want to thank our sponsor this week, Wine Access. This week and every week, wineaccess.com slash normal is how you will join my wine club and you will not miss out on the next shipment, which is going to be absolutely fabulous. I'm not going to announce it yet, but if you sign up for it, I promise I've hand-selected all these wines and we are going to have some really great selections and things you can't get anywhere else. At Wine Access, you'll find wines from Bulgaria. You'll find all sorts of amazing wines from Italy, France, Spain, America. You name it, they've got it. This is a supplement to your wine shopping. It's not to replace your local wine shop, but to help you find things that you may not be able to get. Man, I've had like Armenian wine from there. I've had German wines I'm unable to get, some sparkling wine, wines from all over the globe. Free shipping on an order of $150 or more. That's really not very hard to get to. And they have a buy and hold feature, which means you have a month to get to that $150 threshold to get free shipping. That is plenty of time because they're always adding new things to the site. Plus, they have a standing collection. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal. 
eligible to join the wine club or wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Do it today. You get 10% off your first order. Come see what everybody's talking about. Also, wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes. There are spots available. Oregon and Washington. There's a rosé class coming up. There is the White Wines of Italy. These are all on the new website, which you're going to go check out, wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes. It is like a live podcast, except you get to taste wine with me and you learn a ton and get to interact with me and the group and taste wine together. It's a great deal. Buy as many or as few wines as you want locally or from Wine Access. You can order them. Go to wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes to do that. And again, I will remind you, patreon.com slash wineforNormalPeople to join the community and get a lot of great information. And you can feel good about the fact that you are supporting this podcast and helping keep us afloat. Patreon.com slash wine for normal people. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, please hold. So Super Tuscan is obviously got a huge name and its reputation is all derived from Sasakaya, right? Yeah, that's correct. Am I that ignorant that Sasakaya doesn't like come to the top of, the, of mind? It when... is one of the most famous wines in the world. It's probably the most famous wine of Italy. Is it just, is it hard to find? Is it that expensive? It's that expensive. Okay. Yes. Hundreds okay. and hundreds of dollars a bottle. And for some of the older vintages, thousands of dollars. Yeah, I was going to say, I usually don't, if it's not a thousand, I'm not Yeah, I mean, I know that. I know that. Well, it was originally 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. And Giacomo Takis added 15% Cabernet Franc, aged it in French Barrique. So 1972 was the release for the 1968 vintage. There was a blind tasting hosted by Decanter Magazine in 1978. Sassi won as the best Cabernet. Wow. The 1985 vintage Robert Parker awarded Sassicaia 100 points. This was the first time for an Italian wine. There are many reasons for that, which I will not get into now. And before that, in 1983, the DOC rules were that Bulgari was only for white wine and for rosato. There was nothing for red. The Bulgari DOC was for white wine and rosato only. Sasikaya, with 100 points from Robert Parker, with winning the best Cabernet from Decanter Magazine, mm-hmm. with basically being the rebirth of Tuscan wine, now termed Super Tuscan Wine, French grapes, aged in French barrique is where we get that name. Sasikaya was classified as a vino da tavola, table wine. Jeez. The lowest ranking that you could get. That's when I should have bought it. <laughs> no, because it was still hundreds of dollars and it made what? no difference. See, because this is the difference. This was a problem for British and American press, but it really wasn't a problem for Italians. It wasn't a problem for anybody who liked the wine. What did it matter what the protected status of the wine was? But because the press kept making such a big deal out of the fact that it was classified as table wine, which anybody that knows the DOC, DOCG system knows that it is about the territory. It's about rules of production. It's really about limiting where you can make it so that it reflects an area. There's nothing wrong with it being called table wine. Really, this is a construct of the British and American press who went bananas like 
unduly bananas at the fact that this was table wine. So then what makes and it a is, table wine? Why it was it classified as a table wine? It was wine? classified as a table wine because it was made from grapes that were not authorized by the DOC. And it was made in a technique that was not authorized by the DOC. And that's completely fine. The DOC is not a quality ranking. It's not even a ranking. Well, that's a good clarification. It's about terroir and it's about typicity. Is, mm-hmm. is the wine tasting like it should come from there? A vino de tabla, there's nothing wrong with that. But anyway, people really freaked out. They started calling these wines super Tuscan wines. Again, high quality red wines from Tuscany. Non-indigenous grapes like Cabernet and Merlot, not protected by an appellation, and aged in French barrique. Really, really important. This seems very Frankenstein-y. It's not, though, at all. Sassicaia was a wine made with French grapes, with French barriques, in a place where they don't usually do that. That's all. There's nothing weird about this at all. Doesn't seem very Italian. Well, it doesn't have to be. Does What about American grapes? We grow French grapes, we grow Italian grapes, we grow German grapes. Does that mean it's not American? No, but, well, you know, we're, the Americans take the best of everyone else. And we... Like, well, it, then Australians do that too, and so it. do New Zealanders, and so do Chileans, yes. and so do... Okay, well, that's the new world. The new, the new world. world is right. getting... Right. They are getting influences from a bunch of different places. Yeah, but, I guess that's my point. It's sort of a new world approach that they took. Yes, it is. And there's for, nothing for wrong with that. For a famous old world... You're doing that old thinking. That's exactly I'm that old, kind of... old, if you haven't noticed. I have noticed, but that kind of <laughs> old thinking is what forced their hand to change the Bulgari dock. Because Bulgari dock did not include red, and the most famous wines were red... No one cared about the Bulgari DOC or DOC. Sasikaya was separate from where it was made. So mm-hmm. Bulgari got no play off of this. But in 1977, you had a lot of producers from outside of the area making super Tuscans. In this area, Pier Mario Maletti Cavallero from north of Milan founded Podere Grattamaco in 1977. In the Antonori property, they did two distinct estates. Marchese Lodovico Antonori founded Ornalaya, another very famous super Tuscan wine. Mm-hmm. His older brother, Piero Antonori, who I've already mentioned, founded Guado Altasso, which we went to while we were there. The only producer of Bulgari who's native is a guy named Eugenio Campolmi, who established Le Macchiole, and that wine is quite expensive. I'm going to get to some of the famous names in a second. All these wines were red wines. They were all vino da tavola until 1994. They were red wines made from blends from other varieties like Cabernet or Merlot that didn't fall under the DOC. So they were were table wines. In 1994, two designations came. There was Bulgari Rosso Doc and Bulgari Superiore Doc. And then at the same time, Sasakaya was awarded a subzone. Bulgari Sasikaya DOC. Okay. Now we've got some Rosso. So now people can use Bulgari and Bulgari can now get put on the map. To your point, nobody knew what it was. They knew what the Super Tuscans were. They knew right. what Sasikaya was. They knew what Ornalaya was. They did not know what Bulgari was. Here's the regulations. The regulations said, okay, you can use the Bulgari dock for red wines, but not if it is one grape, not if it's a single grape. It has to be a blend. So that meant that two Merlots, which were so famous and expensive, Masetto, it is 100% Merlot, Ornelia makes it, and Messorio from Le Macchioli, which I mentioned that guy is native to Bulgari, which is nice. These 
we're excluded. So were there any minimum blend percentages? You could have yeah, 99.5% Merlot. No, and, okay. no. I mean, and there was no way this was going to happen. Okay. So from 1994 to 2004, plantings grew from 190 hectares to 1,000 hectares. So massive amounts of plantings, lots of new entrepreneurs. Farmers were changing their crops over to make some money from regular horticulture and agriculture. Yep. The consortio was formed. And of course, who do you think ran the consortio? Marchese Nicolo Incisa della Rocchetta as the head. Pure varietal wines became IGT status, Indicazione Geografica Tipica, which today is Indicazione Geografica Proteta, but that is a level below DOC, and that still exists today. Huh. Those full wines were not DOC status. Okay. In 2011, this is fairly recent. This right. This is 12 years ago. I kind of remember 2011. Yeah, we had a kid in 2011. <laughs> In 2011, you could then use the three main grape varieties on their own, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Cabernet Franc. And prior to this, it could only be a blend and monovarietals only using this. So now still, if you make a Syrah, it has to be IGP. They're making very slow progress. In 2013, Sassicaia Dock was a subzone of Bulgari. It became its own and separated out, no longer a subzone, but Bulgari Sassicaia. Did the Doc. rules change for it or the, the, no, the characteristics, I mean, the classification they rules? They make their own rules. Okay. And then in 2013, after 18 years mm-hmm. as the president of the consorcio, Marchese Nicolo Incisa de la Rocchetta stepped down. Who took over? Frederico Zeleri del Verme, who was a descendant of the Della Gerardesca family, another aristocrat. And then Guess what? In 2019, who was elected as the head of the consortio, but Albira Antinori. So they have 60 it's, members it's of the consortio, 1,350 hectares. And I'm just pointing out that these names keep coming up over and over again, and we will discuss that in a second. To the wines, like American uh, politics. Kind <laughs> of, yeah. So I want to get to the wines, and then I'm going to tell you what these famous wines are and what's in them, because if we're going to discuss Bulgari, you got to know these wines. Reds. Reds are usually a base of Cabernet, either Sauvignon or Franc and Merlot. They can have Syrah. They can have Petit Verdot. Rarely do they have Sangiovese. The grape varieties, you can have 0 to 100% Cab, 0 to 100% Merlot, 0 to 100% Cab Franc, 0 to 50% Syrah. 0 to 50% Sangiovese, and then less than 30% other varieties, including Petit Verdot. These percentages just seem so arbitrary. It has to do with flavor. They're trying to get a certain flavor profile. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Bulgari Rosso, it's kind of like New World wine. It's sweet and dark fruit. It's soft tannins. It's nice acidity, but not much. Very long finish. Aged for one year, but not necessarily in New world wine is sweet. That's... No, sweet fruit. This is not sugar sweet. This is just sweet fruit. Fruit forward? Yes, it's very fruit forward. Okay. Yes. Bulgari Superiore has lower yields. They were required to age it for two years, at least one in oak. So you're going to get a little bit more toastiness. You might get a little more depth in the Superiore. And then... Sassicaia yields are ridiculously low, 10 tons per hectare or less, which is minuscule. 80% minimum Cabernet Sauvignon, 20% complementary varietals, 
has to age for two years, at least 18 months in Barik. Of course, they made those rules. Sasakaya made those rules right. because it's their DOC. Yep. So the vines are getting better in Bulgari. Most of them are aging. They're turning about 20 years old. That's really good because you're going to get more depth of flavor in the future. On the whites, usually Vermentino, often vinified as a single variety. That gets a thumbs up. Blended with Sauvignon Blanc, mm-hmm. Viognier, and there's a bunch of other accessory grapes, as they call them. Okay. Usually no oak, fresh and fruity. Vermentino has a roundness about it. It is really fruity and delicious. Bulgari makes fantastic Vermentino. Highly recommend it. Rosé, actually, that original DOC was white wines and rosato. Guadalajara told us that their first wine was a rosé. Because that's what they were allowed to make under the DOC. So the traditional production relied on Sangiovese, but now it's any proportions of Cab Franc, Cab Sauvignon, Amarillo, maximum of 50% Sangiovese. They're really limiting it. That's funny. Maximum 50% Syrah. Syrah can take over the blend. That's why, but so can Cabernet. And then you can have up to 30% other red grapes. I want to talk about the famed wines and then we will wrap up. It's just important for you to know these brands. Hopefully, Le Vigne de Silvia will be one of them someday. But right now... Is this a brand list of things I can never afford? No. I mean, these are expensive, but they're not totally untouchable. Okay. They are very expensive. It's going to cost you several hundred dollars for most of these. I've already talked about Sasikaya, right? So Sasikaya is obviously the number one. If you want to talk about Super Tuscans and Bulgari, you must know the name Sasikaya. Sasikaya. Okay. Commit it to memory because if you want to sound educated on Super Tuscan wines and the wines of Bulgari, Sasikaya is the name. Another name, though, is Ornalaya. Ornalaya Bulgari Superiore. This is also, the Antonori family who started it, the Marchese Lodovico Antonori in 1981. It was Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Verdot. It was launched in 1988. They had the property just outside the village from his mom. Mm-hmm. Antonori's keep popping up here. Lodovico was a very big fan of Napa Cabernet, and he hired Andre Chelichev, which is a very famous name in Napa wine, as his original consultant. How do I make a wine like Napa in this area? What? Now, I had Ornalaya about a month and a half ago. It was my first time with the wine, and it really did taste like a Napa cab. So good on them. They did a good job. Is that the first occurrence of an old world producer trying to replicate <laughs> no. a new world wine? <laughs> no, look at the Languedoc Roussillon. Okay. I don't know. Just seems really unusual. Think about what's here, though. I All, guess, yeah. It's kind of like the new world plopped into the, the end of Italy. Yeah, okay. Massetto. You must know Massetto. Massetto is important. That was also owned by Lodovico. This was Merlot 100%. Structure, velvety texture. The name comes from the Italian word mazi, which means large rocks. Lumps of clay were in the soils, so that's where it came from. Hmm. Andre Celicev started this wine, found a parcel of 17 acres. It had blue-gray clay. It was outside of Ornelia's borders. And Antonori just bought the land, planted Merlot, because it was the best site for it. And then there's a site with sand and rock for lighter Merlot to blend into the heavier clay Merlot. Mm-hmm. First release was 1987. Sometimes today it has a touch of Cabernet Franc. It's fermented in concrete and barriques. Okay. 
And now both Massetto and Ornelia are owned by the very famous Tuscan family, the Frescobaldi family. They bought it from the Antonoris. Does the Cab Franc in this area have that green pepper? No, that's not at all. Frequently associated with it? No pyrazines in the Cabernet Sauvignon nor the Cabernet Franc because it is so sunny yep. that these grapes never okay. have a problem ripening. Pyrazines come from lack of ripeness or overcropping. Oh, really? They're not overcropping this grape. That because it's a positive it yields, attribute in some areas. It can, but it often comes from overcropping and it's not a positive. And, oh, and huh. it comes from a little bit of underripeness. Now, sometimes it can be pleasant, but too much can be a lot. Guado Altasso, which I've mentioned, we visited. Bulgari Superiore, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot. This is Piero Antonori, Guado Altasso. First made this wine in 1990. This is 790 acres, 300-something hectares, on a flat plain that faces the Tyrrhenian Sea. There are cool breezes. Everything is in New Oak, so that's Hmm. another one to know. Actually, Castello di Bulgari Superiore is made in Bulgari's oldest cellars. It was built by the Gradesca family in 1796. So it is owned actually by one of the former presidents of the consortio, Frederico Zeleri dal Verme, the direct descendant of the Gradesca dynasty. He revived it in 1995. 2001 was the first vintage. That's Castello di Bulgari. And then Le Macchioli in Messorio, 100% Merlot. And then the other one to know is Michele Sata Il Cavaliere, made with 100% Sangiovese. Did you hear that? 100% Sangiovese. Uh, I thought Sangiovese was persona non right. grata around And that's here. why I included it on this list, because he proved that Sangiovese can work here. Current regulations actually don't allow 100% Sangiovese, so it has to be an IGT. Now, I just want to say, because we are talking about Super Tuscan wines, that we are only covering those Super Tuscans that are made in Bulgari because the show is on Bulgari. We're not going to talk about the other Super Tuscans that are made in, in Chianti Classico or any of the other places where they make very fine Super Tuscans. We are only talking about Bulgari. We're talking about the seaside vineyard. We're talking about this small area. To wrap up, I want to say this. I bring this up in the podcast with Stefania, and she can't say it, so I did. If you look at the consortio and you look at all of the names on the consortio and who holds positions of power that make decisions for the growers of Bulgari, even though all the small growers pay into the system, it is still Antonori, Inchisa della Rocchetta, and descendants of the della Gerardesca family. And then you have the Frescobaldi family, which is a very old Tuscan family, okay. right? A very old family that has holdings all over Tuscany. I just, I just want to point out that if you were a small producer, a small young producer getting started in Bulgari, you had to have bought land. At some point, the government forced the hands of the aristocrats to sell to smaller farmers, especially the Marchegiani, the people from Marche who were coming to develop the region. But the fact is, this area is still a class war. Think about that. Yeah. And although the small producers are very grateful, there would be no wine without the Della Gerardesca or the Incesa Della Rocchetta. Mm -hmm. These are the people that made this a wine region. Simultaneously, they're certainly not giving up any power. 
And I just wanted to point that out. It does make it a little bit harder for a smaller producer to get any equal footing. They don't have equal footing. And although, again, no matter how magnanimous these these aristocratic families are, and no matter how giving they are, they still own the lion's share of the land and they make all the decisions. So I just wanted to point that out and it makes it much more difficult for a small producer. Sounds highly political. So we probably need to tiptoe around this a bit, huh? Yeah, I'm just pointing it out and I don't want to get any deeper into it. And Stefania said whatever she felt comfortable saying, but I did notice this. And I think it's an interesting problem because in an area like Chianti, for instance, there are large and powerful producers, Mm -hmm. but they do not run all of the small producers because it's such a large area. Brunello di Montalcino is all small farms. That's good because you can get some variety. Absolutely. But Bulgari has a bit of more of a problem okay. with the power structure. Hmm. That's all I'm going to say. I think it's quite different from everywhere else. Barbaresco, Barolo, small producers everywhere, kind of equal opportunity. Yep. Some people have more money to market. Some people have less, but it is on equal footing. But we don't see that here as much. Again, I'll make the plea for La Vigna de Silvia. I hope that someone picks them up because we need to start seeing smaller producers out of Bulgari. We're just not seeing it. And they're there, and these wines are really fantastic. So I will happily place a pre-order if that helps. I think everybody would. These wines are fantastic, and she is so wonderful. Oh, my gosh. That is Bulgari. Important, I think, to give some background on this region, because like you, MCIs, I think most people don't know what it is, what's here, and why it's so significant. So I wanted to set Stefania up for success and also just have this in the catalog so people could understand the significance of Bulgari because it is an interesting story, isn't it? And it seems like it's just a must-know region. Absolutely. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.